folklore, the beliefs, traditions, and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. As a folklorist, my archives are quite extensive and consist of many and various forms of material upon which I might draw when I'm writing or researching. Aside from a library of books, I have collected stories, field records, off-prints, pictures, sound and video files and artefacts to name but a few. All of these are vital for both keeping records and recording our social history, as well as for citing in articles, books and the like, and expanding upon for future researchers to use. Over the years, I have attended a number of conferences around the country, often to speak and sometimes to listen. These have been on a variety of folklore-related topics and have always been immensely valuable as a learning experience as well as a chance to meet and network with friends and colleagues. I have heard hundreds of talks on many topics over this time. Wherever possible, I have always tried to record these talks for my own archive, predominantly as a research tool. This means that I have built up an amazing bank of material from some very talented researchers, both well-established and new to the field. I have drawn on many of these talks again in my own work. Sometimes a single idea or piece of data has led to a whole article or a thread of research that I would not have expected in my own work. Since this podcast began 18 months or so ago, it has built up an audience of many thousands of listeners. Some of you are folklorists, some of you are amateur researchers, some professional authors, and some just interested in folklore as a topic. It struck me recently that Whatever your standing and engagement with the podcast episodes, a large number of you would probably be able to benefit and take away ideas from the archive of talks. Now, of course, I cannot just put them on the podcast and open them up. That would be unethical on many levels. I can't broadcast any of this material without the kind permission of those people who gave the talks in the first place. In some cases, that is easy. Some of these speakers I see regularly or I'm good friends with. Others I have never met again and would need to track down. But I think that the effort is worth it on many levels. And so, some occasional episodes of the Folklore Podcast will now give me an opportunity to bring some of this material to you. Today's episode, Alien Big Cats, was recorded on September 7th, 2013, at Paynton Zoo in Devon 
and comes from the Folklore Society's 8th Legendary Weekend. Around September each year, the Folklore Society hosts a two-day mini-conference on a particular theme. These are additional to the main society conferences each April, and they're less formal gatherings. The events are planned and staged on behalf of the society by the British folklorist Jeremy Hart, and the locations are always relevant to the topic of the conference. This one, at Paynton Zoo, was about beasts in legend and tradition and it examined animals in culture. Alien Big Cats was presented by Steve Patterson. Steve is a writer, folklorist and woodcarver. He lives and works in West Cornwall and has been a student of folklore and the occult for as long as he can remember. Since the mid-1990s, Steve has been an active supporter of the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic and regularly gives workshops and talks as well as running popular folklore walks in his home area. As well as a number of small pamphlets and many magazine articles, Steve is the author of two books. Spells from the Wise Woman's Cottage is an introduction to the cunning traditions found in the West Country. Steve presents a number of charms and spells and traces their history and meaning. His second title is Cecil Williamson's Book of Witchcraft, which looks at the life of the founder of the museum. It is a valuable resource which looks at a hitherto largely ignored episode of modern occult history, and it presents a biography of Williamson, who was an important and influential figure about which not as much is spoken as should be. This book also contains a fully annotated transcript of the handwritten manuscript Witchcraft, which was written by Williamson but never published. Both of Steve's books are published by the respected esoteric publisher Troy Books. Here, then, is the recording from my archives of Steve Patterson's 2013 talk on Alien Big Cats. Although there is sufficient evidence to prove that at least some sightings of big cats in the landscape are real, Steve also discusses how these sightings have an influence and a bearing on the folkloric angles of the big cat reports. If you like how they add to the narrative. I have removed the first 30 seconds or so of the recording which are very poor quality, and so join the talk just after the introductory statements. And a look came over her, and it's a look that anyone here is familiar with investigating folkloric or anomalous phenomena will be very familiar with. It's a look which is a mixture of the desire to speak and the desire not to speak and the desire to remember and the desire to forget all rolled in together in equal proportions. And she started telling me this extraordinary story regarding the beast of Bodmin. How she... uh, she, um, so she came from a farming family on Bobbymore, and they were having trouble with the beast. Um, now, it started off with uh, the sheep farmers. The sheep were being spooked at night, and then they actually started losing stock. And then one night, um, she went down to investigate. She said they were huddled in a corner of a field. The sheep were acting in a way that was quite unusual for, for a sheep, she'd say. And she, um, she heard a long, low, feline <coughs> growl coming from a small clump of trees. Now, she ran back up to the uh, farmhouse, which is the worst thing you can do with cats, but 
Um, and the whole family were afraid to go out at night without a gun. Now, they called the man from Math. Then Math, was Math before death, right? And uh, the Math man came round. And he, of course, as we all well know, reassured them that there was no such thing as the beast. There is no cat. It's all nonsense. But if they see it, not to shoot it with a shotgun <laughs> or a 2-2 bullet, because it will just bounce off its hide. What they must use is a 306 bullet, which is what she had on her key ring. Now, interesting story. Um, of course I asked her, why did Math have that? Why, you know, why were Math taking this stance on the whole thing? And she was saying, well, quite simply, they were over a barrel. They knew something was out there. They knew people were losing stock, but they couldn't do anything about it because there's big game hunters about, but no one who can track in this territory. Now, this was my first... Um, this is my first encounter. Uh, first-hand encounter. I'd come across with stories of the big cat. Now, I'd always been aware of the big cat. I was um, born and brought up in Surrey, and of course in the 60s there was a Surrey puma, high-profile account. And, you know, big cats have always been around, but... Conceptually, I've never really quite known where to put them. Is it a cryptozoological phenomena? Is it a folkloric phenomena? It sort of fell between the boards, and so consequently, it sort of passed me by a bit. But in sort of as years have gone on, I've, I've sort of realised that this is something quite integral to the big cat stories. There's something liminal in between, neither here nor there about them. Now, very shortly afterwards, I actually had my own first encounter with the beast. I was living in Constantine, which is a small village between Helston and Falmouth. And I went out for a walk, it was in the twilight, and I went to Constantine Woods, and there's a big spoil heap there. It used to be an old uh, quarrying territory. And I climbed up to the top of the spoil heap to see if I could see the sunset from the woods. And I saw a strange shape moving along the line of the hedge on the opposite side of the field and what first struck me about this is it was some sort of shape about the size of a large Labrador and it was fluid it was moving like fluid I wasn't even sure if it was a creature but then just as it reached the end of the field line I saw that it had a long tail and a distinctly feline shape to it now, again, another strange phenomena when one is looking at strange anomalous phenomena is that one never reacts the way one thinks one would. One very rarely reacts in a rational way. And strange things I've come across in the past, sometimes you're filled with uh, fear. It's not fear of the mind, it's a reflex fear, a fear of the body. Sometimes strange experiences, one, they seem incredibly normal. And it's only later, looking back on them, you start thinking what a strange thing is that happened. But almost every time, one takes these experiences and puts them aside in almost like a different part of your mind, different part of your consciousness. You take it out of your normal life and put it aside. Which is not surprising, because maybe experiences like this speak to a very different part of the mind, to that which we use in our everyday life. Um, 
this, of course, makes in investigating these sort of phenomena from a cryptozoological point of view not impossible. People never react in a particularly useful way for that. But this is the basis of, I think, these phenomena as a folkloric phenomena. Now, something that fascinates me, I've got no conclusive ideas on this, is the gap between an observed phenomena and a narrative. When does that observed phenomena enter into the body of a narrative? And I think this is something we can see with, it, with these big cat stories. Anyway, after my big cat, I, I saw this strange thing. I kept it to myself. Within the week, I heard someone else in the village saying that they had witnessed a very similar thing at the other side of the village. And sure enough, over the next few weeks, I heard quite a few other accounts. Anyway, between about the mid-90s and the mid-noughties, there was a whole flurry of accounts of big cats around the sort of Constantine area. In fact, I think it was actually filmed at one point and it appeared in the West Britain sometime in the mid-noughties. Um, one farm I was living and working at at the time, at the north end of the parish, um, this must have been in the mid-noughties, um, the farmer there, she was in her 70s, she went out for a walk in the afternoon with her grandson, who was in his mid-twenties, and they saw it in broad daylight in the field. Now, she is of that generation where at school they learnt by rote and, you know, had to learn great chunks of Hiawatha and, you know, rhyme with the ancient mariner. And she's got a quote for every occasion. She came back, I remember, and she said about seeing this big cat in the field, and she said it was a... An apparition, a moment's ornament, which I believe comes from Brown. And it's a little phrase that always comes back to me with the big cat. An apparition, a moment's ornament. Now the most extraordinary uh, account I, I came across the cat was the farmer I just mentioned. She said the farmer who lived in the farm behind had actually seen it. Now it wasn't until some years later. I was working for the parish council, I was cutting the uh, footpaths. And I actually was actually passing through his farm. And uh, I saw him down here. He's a classic old farmer, Leslie. He's a classic old school Cornish farmer. He lived in a tumble-down old house. I think he lived in one little room in it. He was, uh, he was as tall as he was wide. And uh, he spoke in a deep Cornish brogue. And he used to use the F word and the C word as a punctuation. <laughs> and, uh, and for most nouns and verbs and adjectives as well and I saw him one day. I said Leslie I said we were chatting with him and I sort of said what's this about you seeing the big cat and he said and he told me this story he said yeah it was some years ago he said he was out there and he pointed to a field across the valley and there was a rock there and he said he saw the big cat there again used same description about the size of a large Labrador long tail squarish head sitting sunning itself on the rock so he went back to get his gun, and he had no ammo. He said it was. This must have been. It must have been at the time just before the foot and mouth, because the police went round confiscating a lot of the farm's ammunition, just before the foot and mouth. Um, and um, so he went to his cousin who lived just up the road, and he had no ammunition either. And he went back and he saw the cat was still there. So he went to another farm just down the road to see if he had any ammunition. No ammunition. So he went back and the cat was still there in the evening, sunning itself on the rock. 
so he didn't know what else to do, so he just went home and went to bed, and that was it. And the cat went. I said, oh, Leslie, why did you want to shoot it? And he said to me, got to imagine this in the deep Cornish brogue with the F's and the C's, he said, well, I wanted to shoot it, I wanted to take it, nail it to the door of Radio Cornwall, and then everyone would know that the cat exists. <laughs> I imagine him, Farmer Leslie, like, like, he's like Martin Luther, nailing his declaration to the church in Wittenberg, an ontological statement of existence of the cat. There you go. He never, he never did. Well, look, here's a few accounts, just a few accounts, personal accounts I've had of the cat. Now, this begs a number of questions. Am I deluded? Are my informants deluded? Am I making this up? Am I on a wind-up? Um, am I some kind of publicist? There's all sorts of... Th- I say no to these. All these. Uh, I say this is what I think I saw and what other people have told me. Now this begs <coughs> the question, a question that has dogged philosophers since the dawn of time. The question of knowledge. How can we really know any phenomena? How can we make sense of what we see before our eyes. I mean, I'm telling you these stories, and by the time you're hearing them, they're already second-hand accounts, and by the time if you, you tell them to anyone else, they're already friend-of-a-friend-of-a-friend stories. But one thing we can be sure is that these stories, these kind of accounts, these are the raw material of folk beliefs. This is the, you know, this is the, this is the coal face, as it were, of folk beliefs. And as I said earlier, I'm intrigued at this this inductive leap between these kind of experiences and the narratives that wind their ways around them. Like the griffin. Did something like this ever happen about the griffin? It's one, you know, one can't help asking these questions. Um, But this is asking whether the cat exists or not or the night is in a way which is the most often question that sort of comes up is it, I think in a lot of ways it's, it's asking the wrong question it's not the most interesting point and one of the most interesting things about it is the way in which it exists let's look at some of the possibilities um, about the possibility of some kind of wild cat some of the big cats at the moment as we know most of the big cats in the world uh, live in South America, Asia, Southern Africa. Supposing there are some wild cats living in the wild. Could they exist out out there with no one seeing them? I know for a fact that I've worked outdoors for most of my life and I've never ever seen a weasel. And I know a lot of people who've never seen badgers. Uh, there is a possibility, I think, creatures could live out there with no one seeing them. But it's more complex than that. I'm going to come back to it. Um, in the late 70s, they say there was a Dangerous Animals Act where a lot of it was very easy to uh, buy and keep dangerous animals up until this point. Um, end of the 70s, they brought a law which defined the way in which you must keep animals, which, which is quite expensive. And so they say a lot of people put them out in the wild. There's no evidence for this. This is a speculative theory. There's a lot of holes in this theory. Um, I can really... That's in the realms of sort of uh, cryptozoology. I'm not really going to go into that. But um, uh, 
you know, we've got to keep, keep, keep these ideas in mind. Um, interesting theory. Big cats, especially lions, they're one of the most ubiquitous... Once upon a time, they were one of the most ubiquitous species in the world. They lived in every continent, up until the Ice Age, very, even right up into Northern Europe. Uh, until the Classical period, they existed down in the Mediterranean. Um, maybe there is a prehistoric species of big cat still living out there, hiding away. We don't know. In, in, interesting idea. But... Um, one of the sort of one question people often ask if this is the case if there's big cats out there how come there's no evidence of it how come they're never shot or captured or photographed well simple answer to that is they are there's an enormous amount if you just flick around in it online or look at any of the books there is a lot of big cats have been shot captured photographs attacks well well sort of monitored the interesting phenomena is is why don't we believe in them why don't we choose to see them a, um, a psychologist by the name of leon festinger came up with this idea of cognitive dissonance this is the idea that we're not rational creatures at all we construct the world around us not by what we rationally work out but what makes us feel most comfortable we adopt the beliefs, the paradigms which we want to believe. Our perceptions and our cognitions are not rational, they are ideological. We want to live in a world where we know the big cat's out there but we don't want to see it and we will do everything to maintain this belief. Even if it involves beating rationality on the head as we're going. It's um, Okay, let's look at other um, other sort of, let, let's look at the place of uh, the big cats in mythology. Um, there's two main strands of sort of, uh, of, of the mythology of big cats. Um, on one side, they're seen as um, very much of this world. They're seen as um, um, they're connected with power. They're with kingship. Remember, the lion was a symbol of the British Empire. Uh, Haile Selassie was the Lion of Judah, the Lion, uh, lion Gate of the Mycenae. The, Mycenae. Um, the, it's the, the Lion that is all about control, power, it's about the strength of warriors. But there's another side to the big cat stories as well. The big, the big cat, and we've got the Nemean Lion. In the Arthurian mythos, we've got is it the Cathpelug, I think. Yeah, the Cathpelug. And it's. Uh, who appears again as sort of a, a nasty beastie that has to be fought. Um, in, uh, we've got this other side to the um, big cat stories. They're magical, they're mysterious, they're between the worlds, they're shapeshifters. Um, there's the jaguar people of um, uh, South America. There's, um, there's um, a cat, big cat human lycanthropy stories from um, Asia. Um, India and um, sort of a native version of this of course we've got is the witch's cat stories interestingly some of the um, hair stories are interchangeable with the cat stories I think it's, is it John Layard who wrote the leaping hair right okay yeah the, um, he, um, he mentions it he mentions it in there um 
John Layard, he wrote another book on hairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it, it's certainly quite true. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> transformation to hair yeah. or transformation to cat. Perfectly and the, the, the old story about the cat stroke hair running out, they shoot the cat stroke hair and they go mm. back and they find the witch with an identical wound. It's a sort of a story that sort of crops up all over the place. But again, this idea of transformation, change. And of course the cat's turning up in the witch trials as well. The cat is familiar. The cat is an intermediary, intermediary between the worlds. There's that very eerie account in the... Um, uh, in that mid um, 16th century um, Elizabeth Francis trial I think it is where she has the she's accused of having the familiar cat Satan who speaks to her in a hollow voice she says but you know this other side of the cat so, so on one side you've got them very sort of of this world power strength on the other side you've got them um, you've got them there their transformation, their magical, their lunar creatures, this other side. So we've got this sort of dichotomy between them. But it's very much this latter part of this mythology that's sort of shaped in, a, in many ways the way that we, um, we, we see the cats. Uh, some other interesting theories come up sort of regarding the cat, which I think feed into this cat mythos. Something that um, Bruce Chatwin mentions in, the, in his book, The Songlines, he talks about this idea of the Dinophilus there being an ancient species of big cat that existed up until the sort of uh, the upper Paleolithic um, that fed on humans, and for a while there was this pitched battle between humans and this species of cat that took place in the darkness of the caves, with the cats living in the darkness of the caves and us living in the entrance to the caves, and somehow this this period of our history has has stuck with us. And it's still there in the back of our minds, this fear of the darkness is, is embodied by this idea of the cat coming out of the darkness. Joyce Froome works in a, a museum of witchcraft down in Boss Castles, wrote with a book of cunning enchantments. She links the witch's cat in with this mythology. So again, this idea of the witch's cat is a manifestation of this cat that comes from the darkness but she takes it a st stage further she puts it into a magical context she says the cat is an embodiment of the darkness is a kind of a fear that transforms our consciousness it transforms our levels of consciousness so these big cats um, what are they well whether we like it or not they are a phenomenon there is something there, whether they're fur and flesh and blood, whether they're a psychic phenomena, whether they're a psychological phenomena, whether they're a phenomena that emerges from narrative. There is big cats are very much there and very much present. They're there in the dark woods looking out at us with their big eyes following us. And they inhabit the edge of culture and they inhabit the edge of our perceptions and they inhabit the edges of our known world. They're lurking in the moors and the hedges and the woods and the cornfields. Uh, both conceptually and physically, in many ways, the big cat to us is an embodiment of liminal space. Now, the first book I ever bought, when I was very little, we used to go on family trips to the nearest town, Guildford, I bought a copy of Alan Garner's book on goblins. And I think that started me off. And um, he talks about goblins as being 
liminal creatures, creatures of the boundaries that uh, embody this sense of liminality. And in the introduction, I think his introduction had a great influence on me. He wrote, We've lost our faith in the terror of the cornfields, in the dark woods, but we still need terror. Boneless and other such bugs now ride flying saucers, and it's the nearest galaxy, not the churchyard where menace lies. But I think he was writing this in the 60s, at the height of the Cold War, and when the shine was still on the glamour of our dream of a brave new world of technology. And I think that's passed. I think the UFOs have passed overhead now, and we're left once again with the darkness of the cornfield and the darkness of the woods. And that's where the big cat dwells. And it's the terror of the shadow that lays at the edge of our world that still fascinates us and draws us into it. And this terror isn't a fear, it's an awe. It's a sense of the numinous, it's a sense of the other. And it thrills our souls to the core. And it's like, like, so like the <coughs> witch's cat, the beast has slinked once again into our lives and it's re-enchanting our world. And for good or ill, we've conjured up from the shadows as an embodiment of liminality, the big cat. I am grateful to Steve Patterson for granting me permission to share my recording of this talk on the Folklore Podcast. I hope that you found it interesting and informative. I'll work hard over the forthcoming episodes to obtain permission to release more of these talks from my archives. If you find these useful, do please leave comments on the website or on the podcast discussion group, or email me via the contact form at www.thefolklorepodcast.com, and I can then pass this on to speakers. I'll be attending a number of conferences this year also. One of these has invited me particularly to attend and record and interview speakers, especially for the podcast, and I look forward to bringing you more about this in the coming weeks. I'll be approaching speakers at other conferences in advance and securing as many as I can for the podcast, so I hope to be able to broaden even more the number of experts that I can give you free access to this year. Please do help to make this happen by sharing the podcast on social media wherever you can to grow the audience even further and to attract more of these high-quality guests. Finally, if you are a folklore collector yourself and you have recordings that you think would be of interest, do please get in touch via the website or the discussion group. I would be happy to consider these for broadcast, providing you have the clearance for this to happen. Similarly, if you think that copies would be beneficial to be included in my own archives, then get in touch and let me know. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr. Underscore Mark Underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. 
For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash the folklore podcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening. <laughs>